Pastor Eric, could you open in prayer? Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Uh, your mercies are new every morning. And we thank you for the opportunity to look into the book of Acts. We pray, Lord, for our teacher, for Bob. We pray that we would have ears to hear and minds to understand the things that you say through your scripture so that we may be equipped, so that we may stand firm, and also be those who contend for the faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're finally back at Acts. The last time I was teaching in Acts, we were in Acts 10, but we had one verse we didn't get to. I'm going to finish it, and we'll go to Acts 11. Acts 10, 48. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. These were new believers, and they were Gentile converts. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Okay, I made some points here, and feel free to discuss these points. Number one, it did not matter who did the baptizing. What matters is you're baptized in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're baptized in his name. Amen? Now, church history is littered with false doctrines, false teachers, distorted ideas, people that would lord it over the flock, who would make people under bondage. There were people that went around and said, non-Trinitarian Pentecostals are out east of the cities. If you're not baptized in the name of Jesus only, you're going to hell. And they demand that people reject the Trinity. There are others who say you have to say you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit based on Matthew 28. And if you don't do that, you're not really saved. And the debate goes on and on. And it touched us back in the 80s because we had a lot of new converts and we had to baptize people. And we didn't personally, I didn't want anybody to ever feel like they came to Christ, they believed the gospel, they obeyed Christ, they're baptized, and somebody's going to come along and tell them they're not saved. (laughs) So here's what we did. Go down to the lake. We baptize by immersion. There's a good reason for that because you want to bury the old man, right? And uh, you look at the analogies in 1 Corinthians 10 and so on. So we'd say, and maybe some of you were baptized in this way by me even. We said this way, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we baptize you by the authority of Jesus Christ's name and baptize them. And they say, were you baptized In the name of Jesus, yes. Were you baptized by the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Yes. Well, now what are we going to do? We don't know how to destroy your faith. We're frustrated. We did that for a year. Maybe we still do. I don't know what Eric does. But we did that for years to try to protect the flock against people who would come along and distort and trouble, and confuse, and pervert. It always happens. We know that happened in biblical times. Look what happened in 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul said, 
because they're so carnal. So Paul said, well, I'm glad I didn't baptize you because then you'd think you were baptized in the name of Paul. Remember that? Okay, well, guess what? Even that gave fuel for somebody. Les Feldy comes along and says, Christians should not be baptized at all. It's only for the Jews. Based on misinterpretation, 1 Corinthians 1. Not even trying to understand what Paul was saying. So I had to write an article about that in order to comfort the flock. Dear ones, the Bible tells us what we need to know. If you believe the gospel and you're baptized as these people were, it doesn't matter who it was and whether the formula was said just exactly the way somebody said it should have been said. Eric, I want your comments. You know, I was thinking, Bob, um, some time ago you gave us a teaching about the priesthood of every believer and just how this ties into it. Any believer can baptize someone in the name of Christ. This is a refutation, really, of what the Roman Catholic doctrine is in which a priest is necessary to do baptism properly. But when we understand that every believer is a priest to the Lord Jesus Christ, then we realize that any believer can baptize. And the significance isn't the person that's doing the baptism. The significance is the one that you're joined to. It's the symbology of baptism. The symbology is that you've been united with Christ. You're dead with him to the old world, and you're raised to newness of life. That's what it symbolizes. So this, the importance of baptism is who you're with, namely Christ. It's not significant who does it. And every single believer is a priest. So the Roman Catholic doctrine that only priests can do it really has no leg to stand on. There, there we go. Yes. I was just going to say that the, uh, the Mormons, that the theology is very flawed when it comes to baptism. They're doing it over and over and over again. Thank you. The Mormons, that not only their baptism bad, so is their Christ. So is God. They have a bad doctrine of God. Yes. Uh, actually, one other thing, too, and, and we run into people who they, they say they believe in Christ, but yet they haven't repented of sin. And so, uh, to me, what, what, what we see in the Bible, we have to really consider the full counsel of God. We have to consider all of the Scripture. Now, in this sentence right here, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. If we have a Hebraic understanding, I think this is true. You guys tell me if I'm wrong here. Uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, that means the essence of who Jesus is. And he came to die for our sins. In other words, there's a whole lot of meaning packed into that phrase. That phrase, in the name of Jesus Christ, is hugely meaningful and Sometimes you'll talk to people and they don't know how much meaning there is in that. So they'll forget about repentance. They'll forget about, you know, the, the full gospel. I, if you could comment on that, I don't know if I'm, if I'm right. Well, I, I just feel like there's a lot of that. Everything the Bible reveals about him in here is by his authority. Now, is that, go ahead, Eric. You know, I was going to, you're right, as far as the name is concerned. Bob has mentioned this numerous times. The name is always attached to the, the character and the work of the person in the ancient Near East. We don't think of the name as that important in the American culture. I always laugh. There was a movie out years ago. Val Kilmer was in it. And this gal asked him, what's his name? And he says, Nick. 
He says, I don't know, my dad thought of it while he was shaving, you know. And uh, the, the, the point, nothing wrong with Nick, but the, the point is, is oftentimes we don't put a lot of thought into the name, but they certainly did. I mean, think about Jesus' name is Yahweh saves, and it has to do with the character and the work of the person. So you're and right. Christ means Messiah. Amen, exactly right. So it's, it's loaded with ideas that are important Christian theology. But this will get distorted. Here's another one. And you learn this from Acts. I may have said this. Remember when Simon the sorcerer was baptized, but it turns out later he wasn't really a Christian? Right? Peter said, you and your money can, you know what, together? And literally in the Greek, you can perish together. Now, not too long after the death of the apostles, the church was, there were a bunch of things. Remember, Constantine was afraid he wouldn't be good enough. He might backslide. So he waited until just about when he's going to die and baptize me. Well, then they created this in one of these uh, catechists. You, you had to go for years of trying to prove you're worthy Christian before you earned the right to be baptized. Is that right? Well, that's not here either. So if somebody says, I believe in Jesus Christ, and I'm trusting him, I want to serve him, they can be baptized immediately. If they turn out to be a Simon sword, the sorcerer, then we find out they weren't real Christians. But it doesn't make us wicked because we baptized them. Peter and the apostles that came down, they weren't wicked because this guy had been baptized. Uh, that's too much to bear. It's like doing weddings. When I was young, I thought, oh, man, if I do a wedding and then these people end up not doing well or they might end up getting divorced, I failed. I, should, I, I did something wrong. I didn't do enough to make sure that could never happen when we did all this work at the ceremony. Well, if you really take that far enough, pretty soon you say, you know what? Here's a ticket to the justice of the peace. Go. I don't want that guilt. I don't want everybody that's ever got married, everything that ever happened, whatever thing ever happened to their kids, and everything that ever happened for generations to come. It's all on me. I didn't do it right. Forget it. I, I'm not doing any ceremonies. That's that. But you can't bear all that. People are. You have to do things the way we know God's called us to do it. And God is the one who creates the fruit and the outcome. Yes. This um, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty nine. 29. Um, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not, the, if the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? Remember, Eric, I, I can't remember what the issue was. Could you go ahead? You know, I would say, Levon, that that's a descriptive passage, but it's not prescriptive. That's how I understood it. In other words, yeah, what Paul is describing is what they did, but he in no way is endorsing what they did. He didn't say to do it, yeah. Um, So what he's doing is simply taking what the Corinthians were doing and showing them the logical fallacy of not believing in the resurrection of the dead. Yeah. So, but he wasn't advocating uh, baptism for the dead, but they were doing that, yeah. But they were wrong. Okay, Dana, go ahead. Another aspect of that point about it, it did not matter who did the baptizing. 
um, sometimes Christians are troubled because they're baptized, and then later on they find out that the person who baptized them, the pastor who baptized them, had moral failings or doctrinal failings or whatever, and they think, oh no, oh no, my, my baptism wasn't valid. Well, the, the validity of your baptism doesn't depend on the person who did the baptizing. Amen. And your, and your marriage doesn't depend on the person who, you know, said the vows. Or had you say them, Yes. Uh, on that point too, about it doesn't matter, you know, who who did the baptizing, but your relationship with Christ. I, I would caution when we baptize people here, we do our best. Uh, we do have a conversation with people who want to get baptized, and uh, to the best of our ability, we don't can't see anybody's heart, and you know, only God can and really knows if that person is saved. But uh, um, you can't go willy-nilly without knowing anybody and say, I believe in Christ, I want to be baptized. You have to uh, do your best you know, to ask them questions, you know, to verify. We ask people you know, about their testimony, uh, to explain the gospel, uh, to, to do our to best to our human ability to verify that we think that they are saved and they're not just... Because it says in James 2.19, you, know, you believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and they shudder. In my commentary here, and you guys can comment on the commentary if you'd like, but it says, um, uh, the demons also believe and they shudder as an answer to the mistaken assertion that belief in God by itself is sufficient, sufficient for salvation. Demons believe, but it's impossible for them to be saved. Saving faith entails more than mere knowledge. It includes trust and obedience for faith without works is useless. So I, I, just a caution, you know, it, someone... If you're baptizing and you don't know anything about that person, it is incumbent upon the person doing the baptizing to try and verify. Again, to the best we've of our ability. We've always done that. We've always done that. Yeah, we've always done that. But when we say, you know, anyone can baptize, well, no, we start saying, yeah. We if, just don't want people to lose their assurance of salvation if they were baptized, if they currently do believe in Christ, but they are baptized by a pastor somewhere and wasn't the best. That same pastor, yes. Uh, comment on a question. Uh, I know some that believe that if you're baptized, of course you need to be immersed, and if you're not totally immersed, like your big toe is above the water or something, <laughs> then, it's, then it's not valid. <clears throat> but which leads me to the question, if somebody is baptized and, you know, they just sprinkle water on somebody, do you consider that a valid baptism? Well, that's between them and God. It's not how I would do it because it's not explaining 1 Corinthians 10. But let me tell you a story. I took, I had some great teachers in Bible college. Praise God for those. I got out my yearbook the other day. Reverend Snow, a dear brother that I had for a teacher. He had been a military chaplain for 20 years and he basically taught us godly wisdom. And he told the story. He was a pastor before he became, after a military chaplain, before a seminary teacher. And he was bad. They used to have into assemblies, got churches, baptismal places inside, right up on the stage. That's where I was baptized, one of those. And he said, I was baptizing a seven foot tall man. <laughs> and I went to get him under. He was so tall, he kind of arched his back when he went down and a little bit of his you know stomach was still up 
And he says, I didn't know what to do because I didn't want any of the old man still alive. So I went like this and pushed it down <laughs> so I could get him up. <laughs> How do I remember that story? But that was, uh, that was Reverend Snow. In reality, we're not saying that the guy wouldn't have made it. And <clears throat> the, the sprinkling, you know, we've left that between people and the Lord. If they, we won't do it. But if somebody believes they were saved, and that's what happened, and they're satisfied with that, I don't know, Eric, what do you do? Do you command them to be rebaptized? Yeah, I, th- I think you're right, but I don't think we want to make a, a law out of the immersion, although the, the verb itself, baptizo, does mean to immerse. Yeah. And Bob has even pointed out in Acts when the, the Ethiopian eunuch is baptized, the issue where there was much water. But you don't, yeah. you don't need much water if you're just sprinkling. So certainly they did immersion. That's the imagery, is like Bob is pointing out, the death of the old man and the resurrection. Um, however, we wouldn't say like in an emergency or something, if someone is sprinkled, that that necessarily invalidates their, their baptism. However, a lot of the sprinkling was done because the, exactly the objects of baptism end up being infants, which we say is really has... That's a problem. Yeah, that's the issue. So that's really the issue. Is it's more of the infant idea rather than the mode, so exactly. to speak, but yeah. they're tied. That's so. right. I'd be questioned. I remember when I came to Christ in July 1971, dear brother uh, that was the pastor there, the church where Diane and her family were. We all went there and that's where we got baptized, whatever. And I was a radical convert because I was like Saul breathing out threats against the Christians. And then I'm converted. And so they were all rejoicing in that church and they've been praying for me. So I went to the pastor and he said, well, you need to be baptized. I said, oh man, now what? And he said, well, I, I said, I was baptized as an infant. He said, well, he didn't want to be domineering. Here's what he said. You read the Bible, and you do whatever the Bible tells you to do. The Bible's our authority. I said, okay. I, I had never read the Bible. And he said, I said, where should I start? Go read Acts, he said. That'd be good. So I went and started reading Acts, and I got to, like, chapter 3, and I called the pastor said, when can I get baptized? <laughs> yeah. I thought that was a wise pastor. Read the Bible. Yes. I, d- I just have kind of a funny story. I'm sure Gene won't mind me telling it. He was baptized as an infant in the Catholic Church, and his mother got a phone call the following day to tell her that his hair was so thick that the holy water didn't reach his scalp. And they had him come back a second time. <laughs> a lot of people would like to have that problem. Uh, I had a sister that uh, passed away at uh, uh, six and a half years old. Anyway, I, I imagine, of course, that she would have been, uh, you know, baptized. But the only the big thing I'm going to say, though, is I heard a very good. Uh, a sermon by uh, David Jeremiah on the radio, and um, God is very gracious, and babies do not have a concept of, uh, even though we're born in sin, they, they, they don't really have the ability to, um, how do I explain this, consider 
they're, what they're doing is yeah. wrong. And, and, and God, I graciously takes them into heaven. I mean, basically. Is that what he said? Huh? I don't know if that's true or not. Well, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm getting it wrong, totally wrong, but I, I, I'm, I'm just trying to say that there doesn't, uh, all I want to say is the Bible doesn't say that babies are going to go to H-E-L-L. Oh, good. Okay. okay, thank you for that. I'm done. Let me comment. Here's what I think is the best thing to do. Never try to make doctrine out of what the Bible does not say. That's a good point. Okay. So some people say, well, there's an age of accountability. Well, what is it? Well, first of all, where does the Bible say there's such an age? And I've said over the years, I don't see that in the Bible. And here's the, and so all this comes up. I said, all right, you want to argue that? You tell me who was ever saved because of lack of accountability. If there's no accountability, then we don't even need a substitutionary atonement, do we? Christ died for sinners. Nobody's not accountable, but people are saved by mercy. So if a baby dies, I would just trust in God's mercy and when we get to heaven, we're not going to find any injustice there. Go ahead. Yeah, I would just concur with that point, too. What we do know out of scriptures is that God is righteous. He always does what is right. Yeah. And, and, and he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Amen. And we don't know. It doesn't tell us in the Bible. And we can, we can guess, but uh, I have full confidence and trust, and we all should, that God will do what is right. Yeah. And that's Amen. between him and the infant. And, uh, so. That's between God and... The per- you know what? It's so much safer to be a Christian teacher and preacher if you just go by what the Bible does say and be willing to say, I don't know about what it doesn't say. The, the only hint that we have from Scripture about the fate of infants is uh, when David's, uh, when Bathsheba's son died and David said that he would see him. So that is the only hint that we have that, that infants do, do obtain salvation. Okay. See, I thought we were going to get to chapter 11. <laughs> How about if we get to the next point, at least on this one? By the way, which is okay, I'm here in this class for us to practice interacting with the Scripture and one another and learning the truth. And not just listening to me tell you what's true. Yes, Eric. Um, I was just thinking of the faith and uh, of what saves us. And I I wanted to make a comment because of Isaiah. By his knowledge will my righteous one make many to be accounted righteous. And I was thinking, you know, God really knows the heart. It's, you know, it's a simple thing like Naaman. He said, go dunk yourself in a river. But, you know, God knows if we've really, truly believed and if we have, like Noah, he, you know, he didn't just hear build the ark, he built the ark. You know, uh, some people point this out too, Eric. The thief on the cross, Jesus said today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. And uh, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized because he died there on the cross. Like, and so, uh, you know what I really 
I agree with what Mike said. What is so important to me is knowing what God has said and knowing his loving, kind, merciful character. But you can't go back from that. People say God is kind and merciful, therefore universalism is true. Therefore, there cannot be a hell. Therefore, all paths lead to God. Therefore, all religions are valid. No, because the Bible does talk about that, and it says it's false. Okay? We're saved by faith in Christ, not by meditating, and not by Buddhism, or Hinduism, or, you know, fatalism of Allah, or whatever people think. Because we evangelize knowing that people are lost. Now, the issue of Peter's response to these new Gentile converts will be the focus of Acts 11. All is well now. What a joyous thing. God did all these miracles. Gentiles are saved. The church is going to be Jewish and Gentile. But trouble lurks. Wait until we finish Acts. And then the last point, in Acts eleven thirteen, what they heard that caused concern was that Peter ate with them. And what we're going to see in Acts, and I want to have, I hope we have some good heart-to-heart talks about this, because I told Diane the other day now that I'm getting to the age where those teachers in seminary and Bible college helped me so much from what they'd learned over for it's been, I've been 45 years now a preacher. I need to share what I've learned. And so don't bear with me. You can disagree anytime you want, but I'd be remiss if I didn't help you the best I can. And I'll just introduce an idea. Start thinking about it now. In my experience in 45 years, still today, food is always sitting there trying to wreck the Christian unity in the church. It's always sitting there right below the surface ready to jump up at us. I've seen it over and over again. And it isn't necessarily the kosher thing. It can be whether there's grape juice or wine at communion. You should have seen the battle over that we had. That's why we used to have both because there's no way to solve it 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 could be so many things and so that'll come up i'm going to tell you what i've learned but my wisdom isn't binding unless it's biblical wisdom what is biblical wisdom is this paul said is don't ever allow food to harm the body of christ in any way and whatever god gave liberty in there really is true liberty that I believe. And that doesn't mean I have the liberty to, if I know somebody has some certain moray about food, that I should throw it in their face and do what I like to do. But we need to realize the body of Christ is precious. 
The joy of fellowship is precious. We need one another. We need everybody that God saves. We need the gifts of everybody that God saved. We need to be there for one another. We need to never turn away from any person in the body of Christ at their time of need. And that is going to last a lot longer than a lot of the traditions of man. Now, um, there was no certain baptismal formula. There was no catechism that had to happen first. It didn't have to be an apostle. It had to be faith in Christ and obedience to the Christ, the, the Messiah who sent us to baptize them by his authority. And they were baptized by the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 11.1. 1. I'm in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. The apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had welcomed God's message also. I've been working with that word. I'm going to use it in 2 John. I've got three sermons done for 2 John. And I'm going to deal with this idea of welcoming. And it has a little bit to do with nuances in Greek and English. But it says, that's why I went to the Holman Christian Standard Bible, because that translation tends to take this term dekomai and translate it welcome. Now, there are other words in the Greek like to receive, okay, and to, or to accept. And it's legitimate to translate dekomai is to receive. Some of yours probably did. This is received in anybody's Bible? Acts 11.1? 1? It is. After I've studied this and used my logos to try to get to the bottom what the range of meanings are, and there's some overlap, dekomai usually means welcomed, meaning this, it has a nuance of favorably. Okay? Somebody may knock on your door and say, I'd like to talk to you about, and then whatever it is they want to talk about, and you might say, well, it's raining out here. Step in. What is it you're talking about? And somebody has, well, we're trying to sign people up for this petition, or we want um, people to vote for so-and-so running for school board, and you hear them respectfully say, okay, and they go. Now, we'd say, well, we received them into our porch. That is more of a neutral. It doesn't mean, oh, somebody running for school board, my long-lost friend. Oh, we're so glad you're here. Well, you know, you just, okay, it's all right. Welcome has a nuance of favorably. We're welcoming you. You came to Christ you're one of us. Here, the gospel was preached. They welcomed the fact that the gospel said to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. They received it favorably by believing in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm working on an article I want to write before Christmas. Got the, a lot of research done about the, the idea of love for the truth. And there's a passage that says they did not 
welcome, dekomai, the love of the truth so as to be saved. And I personally witnessed people, and you evangelists, I know you all seen this, they'd say, I think what you're saying is accurate. Do you see what I mean? Well, yeah, there, there are certain facts. I, we think you can prove. There's a guy I saw on, I think it was Ankerberg, who was convinced that Jesus Christ was the Jewish Messiah, and he was raised from the dead, but he didn't want to come to Christ. And he was a, an atheist who came to, to, to believe that what the Christians said was historically accurate, but he never converted. So he received the evidence about who Christ is, and he received the evidence that Christ was raised from the dead, but he didn't welcome the truth. Uh, while I'm saying that, at the same time, Eric, look up John 12:42, assuming that's the right verse. You'll know if it is. Go ahead. Would that concept be this, a similar concept to like the difference between notitia and fiducia in terms of of faith? Yeah, oh, that's in terms a Latin of faith distinction. Yeah, but yeah. There's a range of meaning yeah. to to note. That's a good one. Fiducia be saving faith, right? Notitia. And trust and the other like gives me consent. Right. right. You can acknowledge and agree <laughs> with something, but to fully trust in it, or like you're saying, to to welcome it and to be joyous about it. There's a difference between those two. One's saving and one's not. That's a good one. I just found a really good one in my Bible. It's First Thessalonians two, thirteen. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Free coffee. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's right. Totally. That was my oversight. Free coffee for Levon. <laughs> Astute reading award. That's right. Is this the passage, Bob? Uh, it says, uh, John twelve forty two. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Yes. Yeah. Comment on that if you'd like. Yeah, just think about the, and I think it ties into what Christy is saying, is that true saving faith, we always looked at it as three elements, and I think you can sustain this biblically. There's notitia, there's knowledge, there's a census, which is saying, yes, I have the knowledge and I believe the facts about Christ are true, but one is still not saved. In fact, Mike cited James 2.19, where even the demons believe and shudder. See, the demons know exactly who Christ is. They know he was raised from the dead. They know he's Lord of all. They know he's coming again to judge the lost and to save those who have come to Christ. But they'd want nothing to do with Christ. And so that's the final element to really of saving faith is fiducia, where you're saying it's for me. I can say, I believe this is a chair. I affirm that it can hold weight, but unless I'm willing to sit in it, I, I, do I really trust in it? So that's the idea is trusting in Jesus Christ, saying, I know who he is. I believe that things about him are true, and he's for me. And that's the, the final element of saving faith. Well, here, these religious leaders were saying, I know who he is, but I'd rather have my position of authority here and now rather than the glory in the kingdom. That's, that's really condemnable. It's, it's, it's bad. <laughs> well, I've used that in my debate with the Seeger movement. Some of these people that I've written about, like the Rick Warrens of the world, 
Everybody's a Christian. It's all good. If you know where to go on our website, you can find Christian, true Christian doctrine somewhere. But they don't welcome it. And when we asked that Christ be confessed, they want to do it. Put these seeker pastors in front of kings and authorities, uh, government, put them here, put them there. They won't confess Christ. They don't confess Christ. Why? Because they love the praises of men rather than God. John twelve forty two. I believe that verse right there condemns the entire seeker movement. Not to mention the fact there are no seekers. None seek after God. So if you're not going to confess Christ, you're not welcoming the truth. Now, someone look up Acts 17, 11, please. And someone else, Acts 8, 14. Let's look at those. Acts 17, 11, Acts 8, 14. Yes, Peter. Here comes the mic. You want me to read 1711? Yes. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Yeah, they welcomed the word. See, do you see in English, there's really a difference between, a lot of times between receive and welcome. Welcome always has a positive nuance. Receive may or may not. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Okay, Acts 8, 14. Well, but I was just going to Oh, ask you had something else. Go ahead. Some, um, going back to those Latin terms for belief, or yeah. the levels of belief, I sometimes get a little uncomfortable with with that in in that it's almost creating a um you know if we believe good enough we're going to get in you know we're going to get to that next level and it almost makes it into a a, a human work uh in and i and i do i understand the distinction of the you know the demons believing but I, I I don't know. It's just some of those Latin terms just kind of bring me back to Catholicism, and, okay. and it's just. Uh, All right. But it's just it's just that it's just that sense of of you know. Dan, did, did not, I believe good enough? We don't. We do not want you to go back there. No, 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 no. That's not going to happen. And, but yeah, no, that's a good point. Let me just say this: the only reason that was brought up during the Reformation was different languages have more or less terms for different things. Like I'm using received and welcome in English, whereas Greek has, is it Lombano? Lombano, Lombano or Decami or Paralabano. And sometimes there's different ranges of meaning. But what the Bible means in the original languages, according to the authorial intent, is all that really matters. So there is a danger because some people think Latin is a holy language. Some people think King James English is a holy language. And I was, was smitten by that article that I gave you. And Dan, by the way, will be teaching about this, about the Reformation, so we're looking forward to that. But it said one of the points of the Reformation 
was that the language, the Bible should be translated into the common vernacular, I think the term was. The common vernacular. But we have people, this is sort of like the food thing, by the way, but we have people that will go around and say, if you're not using this King James Bible, your Bible's defective, and you're probably being deceived by people with bad motives. You, you have defective Bibles. But I'm going to fight that we're using that Reformation idea now. You tell me where in the world is King James English the common vernacular? Nowhere. So you're very much like Rome saying, you got the Latin, that's good enough. You can have that. That's the real Bible. Now we have people saying, well, you got the King James, that's all you need. And people have just viciously attacked me because I wouldn't go along with their King James idea. And I switched simply as a preacher. I studied Greek for two years at North Central Bible College in the early 70s. When I first started preaching in the late 70s, we didn't use the RSV. And there was a reason for that because... It said in Isaiah, a young woman will conceive. So we assumed that was the liberal Bible. I don't know if it is or was or wasn't, but they did say that. So it didn't say virgin. So we wouldn't use the RSV. So all we really had left, other than the ASV, which is even more dense than the King James, we only had the King James. So I started preaching from it. But I had Greek. So when I study for my sermon, I get the Greek, I get my study guide, I get the King James. And when I didn't understand this King James, the Greek told me what the King James probably meant. And then I make my own little translation, modified King James, preach that. The New American Standard came out. I started doing that. I said, hey, I could just use this. Save, save a step. But that's a good point. The language should be the common vernacular. You know, um, if I may just address the knowledge, you know, I, I would be uncomfortable with it as well. I, here's what I would say is if it defines the concept, it's okay. If the concept is really taught in Scripture, for example, Trinity, if we're going to follow that logic, you'd say, well, Trinity is nowhere in the Bible. There's a term that we're enforcing upon the Bible, but the concept is taught. So what I would say is when you go to James 2.19, and it says that the demons believed, but they obviously are going to perish, well, you have Christians who believe. So how do you distinguish the difference between demons believing and Christians believing? Well, there's something different in that, yes, they both have the same knowledge. They both will say the same facts are true of Christ. But one is receiving it, as Bob is saying, in a welcome way. One is saying, I want nothing to do with it. And so what the Reformers did is by using notitia, census, and fiducia, they were really simply trying to qualify what the biblical data was. How do you distinguish genuine faith from ungenuine faith and realizing at the same time that it's God alone who regenerates and gives that saving faith. So what I would say is those terms, while they're imported into the Bible, I think conceptually are faithful to what the biblical data would represent. Is that, is that fair? Just as the term Trinity isn't in the Bible, yet it, it comports with the biblical data. Like uh, the, the one 
disciple who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Yeah. What, uh, how would you? Yeah, you know, you know I, I think that's a very godly prayer. In fact, it's in Mark 9. I think it's one of the most godly prayers because what it's, what it's saying is this person is acquiescing to the fact that the normal condition of man is to not believe. And unless, Lord, you enable me to believe and you help me increase in my faith, I will stumble, I will falter, I will fall. Um, it's that kind of attitude. And so I don't think that that's any contradiction to, you know, the, the, the categories. In fact, it's a prayer to God to enable them to trust. And I think it's a very godly thing. So I don't think that that's a, a contradiction to the, the concepts. Yeah. Um, amen. Well, so welcoming the love of the truth and welcoming the gospel means to receive with joy, to really care that this is true and I need it. I like that one too. Help my unbelief. We don't want to have our assurance grounded in me deciding how great my own faith is. Because mm-hmm. pretty soon you start thinking about self. And sometimes we explain it. I would rather have feeble faith that's real in a great God than to start thinking I have great faith. Yeah, um, I'm glad you just mentioned assurance because um, a lot of people struggle with that. That was a big struggle for me, my assurance, and I think particularly former Catholics. I mean, it just gets, uh, you are, you're assured, you you are, they, they say anathema. You know, to you, if no one can have assurance. They, the Catholic doctrine says if you have assurance, you're going to hell. They, they need to keep you in their system. So they do such a great, yeah, purgatory. You're going to purgatory, you get purified there. But the thing that really helped me uh, um, in the insurance is when I, when I saw that, I think a lot of us get saved as Arminians. We think that we believed, you know, we did believe, but that that was an act, uh, that's something that we did. So Arminians are uh, people who believe in the, in the doctrine of free will. Are our brothers and sisters? You know, it's a debate we can have between each other. Uh, we love them, but when I came to understand, and I want to make sure about me, that the doctrine of election is true, and that God did the saving. And when God does it, you are saved, and it's done, and you can have that assurance. You know, and all of our works are filthy rags. You know, until we are in Christ, right? Because we are saved for good works, what He has uh, decided beforehand, right? It, you know, Second Ephesians two ten. But assurance is a huge problem, especially for Catholics. And uh, I get stuck at that too. And I love Mark nine, <laughs> where it says, "Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief." I had that one on my fridge for years. <laughs> you know, I just yeah. love that one because I see where I fail. You know, and uh, I just ask for His mercy all yeah. the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's the same thing that really helps people. It's who and what we believe and not self-analysis of who's doing the believing. Uh, I went to a uh, Christian high school in Fergus Falls, uh, Hillcrest Lutheran Academy. And anyway, um, there was people there that went through the motions, you know, we had to go to chapel every day, study the Bible every year, and we had a what they called a, a mission meeting on Saturday night, okay? Well, it was kind of like when they graduated, they took off those 
kind of spiritual close, and now I can go sow my wild oats, you know. And uh, and then I talked to one of my former classmates, or and people told me that he came to Christ really after he left Hillcrest, and he, and he told me the Bible. What do I need to study the Bible for? So people just, when they would fill out their applications, I suppose their parents just say, would say, well, you're a Christian, you know? So they would just do that so they could attend Hillcrest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's no process that we can create that'll make Christians. So it's by faith. <clears throat> it's by faith in Christ. Now, um, this is so important. Let me, let me make sure, at least get through this slide here. Dr. Tannehill, great commentary on Acts, Luke Acts. Peter's statement in 238, Acts 238, suggests that in a mission, the gift of the Spirit normally accompanies or follows baptism. In the Cornelius episode, the order is reversed so that the appearance of the Spirit becomes the divine sign that guides the church to the acceptance of Gentiles. Here's why I included that. When I was born again, I was in an Assemblies of God church. And the Assemblies had this distinct doctrine that there were two kinds of Christians. The ones that were just saved and born of the Spirit and the other ones who were baptized in the Spirit. That was a second step. Now, I was supposed to believe that and I did for a while until I eventually realized Acts doesn't really support that. And I wrote an article about it probably 20 years ago, back in the 90s, in CIC. If you go through all the data, some it happens in different stages. Baptism, the gift of the Spirit, all these different things happen. Now, what we want to know is what is Luke's point, not what the denomination tells us we're supposed to figure out. What was Luke telling us? And Luke is showing that God did these things to show that different types of people were being accepted into the body of Christ. And if the order visibly looks a little different, that's, it's to accomplish that. Why should we receive these Gentiles? Well, they received the same gift we did. And so the second blessing doctrine is trying to prove too much. It's not the Luke's point, authorial intent. Tannehill's, which I received, one of my teachers seminary turned me on to Tannehill. It was life-changing as far as understanding Luke Acts. I've been teaching Luke Acts now for 10 years. What did Luke mean? Because he's the inspired author, not the guy who started the denomination. Now, the big problem... The big problem that occupies all of Acts is how is it that there's going to be one church of Jews and Gentiles 
and now two churches, the Jewish church and the Gentile church with different food laws. Okay. And like I said earlier, I hope we can have some real heart to heart discussions about food because it's a time bomb. You wouldn't believe what I've seen in my life about Christians being divided over food. And it isn't just kosher. It absolutely can cause problems. Even however well meaning we are. Dear saints, God has given us liberty. Thank God for that. And the problem to be solved is God welcomed the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. Will the Jewish church welcome the Gentiles into the church? And Peter is going to get in trouble. I got two minutes here. Peter, you know what I'm doing? I'm blowing my voice right now. This is what I got. I won't have it tomorrow, but praise God, I used it for a worthy cause. The gospel. Dear saints, we've got to learn the lesson God is telling us. We need the body of Christ. We need one another. Let it never be said, 1 Corinthians 12, let one member of the body say to the other, this is a quote of the Bible, I have no need of you. Remember that? I have no need of you. Join with me, dear saints. I love you. I know you know that. May we agree together that that won't happen. May it not happen amongst us. You know how hard it is to be married and stay that way? That's just two people. Two Christians married. It's not easy. And we can offend each other real easy, can't we? Well, no, I shouldn't speak for anybody else. I'm really good at it. And I need my wife to tell me when to shut my mouth. (laughs) But if that's difficult, how hard is it for dozens of people to have an understanding of how badly we need one another? And I pray that as we go through Acts, should the Lord keep me here in history long enough to do it, as we go through Acts, we'll keep that in the back of our mind. We need the Lord. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the truth of the Word of God. We need to welcome the truth. And we need to welcome everyone God saved. The one God saved isn't the person trying to get you to sign a petition from some, for some liberal cause. All right, what do you got? I'll see you later. The people God saved need to be welcomed. Oh, I'm so glad to know some person loves Jesus Christ and we're all part of this. And that's why we correct air too. We don't want it to be wrecked. Now, uh, Pastor A, could you close in prayer? Lord, we thank you for these words. We thank you for Bob's wisdom and the uh, gift you've blessed him with. And we pray, to Lord, that we would be those who welcome all that you've brought to your table through faith in Christ. And we do pray that these words of Acts would continue to weigh heavily upon us, that we would see that faith is, or excuse me, salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.